So today we're reading another verse uh, from a different part of the Bhagavad Gita, but it pertains to our second story. So we'll read the verse in the in the uh, standard way and the purport, and then I'll tell you a story. Chirvasa niraharo. He did not depend on his brothers for anything. And just like a deaf man, he heard nothing. Please repeat. After that, Maharaj Yudhisthira dressed himself in torn clothing, gave up eating all solid food, voluntarily became dumb. And let his hair hang loose. All this combined to make him look like an urchin or a madman with no occupation. He did not depend on his brothers for anything. And just like a deaf man, he heard nothing. Thus being freed from all external affairs, he had nothing to do with imperial life or family prestige. And for all practical purposes, he posed himself exactly like an inert, mad urchin and did not speak of material affairs. He had no dependence on his brothers, who had all along been helping him. This stage of complete independence from everything is also called the purified stage of fearlessness. Thank you.
Now I'd like to introduce you all to the second crazy man. Uh, I, I uh, experienced this encounter in Jagannath Puri. I was, it was in 1996, I think. And I was staying there for some time. And by some uh, arrangement, I had an opportunity to do some seva at the Gambira of the place where Lord Chaitanya resided when he was in the sacred Dharma uh, Jagannath Puri. And so there was a, a, a man in charge at that time who, sometimes you find this in India, there's somebody in charge of the temple who's a little corrupt. <laughs> They're a little bit motivated. They would like your money uh, or they would like to uh, prosper from your uh, donation. So I had gone to Jagannath Puri regularly over many years and I knew this man's uh, behavior. So when he came up to me and he said, I would like you, because you're white-skinned, I would like you to donate for the repainting of the whole interior of the Gambira the temple, the whole place. I knew to be very cautious. So I said to him, how much would that cost? And he made a rough figure, uh, 3,000 rupees. And I said, um, uh, bring the painter here. So I had a friend with me who spoke Hindi. So the painter came, and he was a simple man, a local man. And uh, the, my friend who was speaking Hindi spoke to him very clearly and, and precisely and said, how much would it cost to paint this? And he said, oh, around about 1,500 rupees. <laughs> So I said to the, the man in charge, I said, I don't have 3,000 rupees, but I have 1,500 rupees, and I'll give it to you when the painter has finished painting, if I like his work. <laughs> so he said, stood there for a while, trying to consider how that was going to be profitable for him. And then he said, okay, all right, we'll do it. So I was staying for uh, a length of maybe three weeks in Puri by myself. So every day I would go from the ashram where I was uh, renting a room to the Gambira and I would sit there for a while and watch the painters paint. And they were very simple. One of them was a, a mute, so he didn't have much to say, but he made lots of noise. He was very animate. And they were very nice, uh, simple village people and they were painting and they are painting. And uh, I would give them sort of uh, uh, stern complaints every time I'd go and march in there and say, this is not good enough, fix this, look at the way you've done that up there. And it was true, they had did a very sloppy job, but then they would have to get rid of all of that, and the gentleman would come in and he would tell them sternly that they're not painting well enough, and then they would fix it up. And in this way, every day I would go and see how that was going. And one day I was visiting this Gambira, this temple, and after, it was in the afternoon, so after my visit and my exchanges, which were ultimately very playful, but uh, had to appear very uh, stern, uh, I came out, and, and if you've visited Jagannath Puri, you know, but if you haven't, the path, the roadways leading to the temple they're not roads. When I say to you a road, you think of out here, Dank Street, and it has a nature strip on either side and a pathway and a road and cars going down the middle. Well, this was probably as wide as the nature strip and the path. And there were no cars going down the middle, just bicycles and, and pedestrians. So on either side of this narrow road, uh, there were little stalls. I don't know if it's changed radically by now, but shopkeepers had little open-fronted shops. There was no doors to open, you didn't go in and come out. You just stepped up about this high onto a platform with bricked, a, bricked wall, a bricked little place with a, a, a cement platform, leaving your shoes outside and you'd step up and you'd be in the shop, which wasn't really our idea of a shop. It certainly wasn't a mall. 
It certainly didn't have all the modern conveniences that we have grown to identify with the shop or shopping. So I was just walking down, it was evening, and it, it was immensely peaceful there. It wasn't a, 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 a touristy time. And as I was walking along, I saw there was this uh, shop, and it was a milkman's shop. And he has a big walk, about this big, maybe about this round. And in the, in the walk, he has milk. And the milk, somebody comes with a milk uh, cab container, and they pour it into the walk, and he sits there for hours and hours and hours stirring the milk. Uh, he has some bricks underneath with a little fire, and that's his uh, cooking space. So he's the milkman, this is the milkman shop. So I was walking along, and he was there, and he had all these clay cups at the front, empty, just made by the, uh, the people who make clay cups. And it just looked so simple and nice. So I turned around to him and I did a few gestures that he could understand for a glass of, a, 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 cup, of a cup of milk. So he gave me my cup of milk and it was nice and hot. So I sat down on the side of the, the, the edge there and I was sitting there and he was peacefully stirring his milk in the wok. Just quiet, everything was very uh, tranquil. And all of a sudden there was a sort of a noise, a bit of a din. So I looked around, I saw there was this man kind of running, running, walking, running, walking down the road from one side. And as I said, the road was only this wide. So he's running along laughing. And uh, so it caught people's attention because it was a little quiet. And so he comes running, 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 and I turn to see. And he's got very disheveled hair everywhere messy and he's wearing only a jumper just barely covered his his whole uh, the respectable parts of his body and just skinny kind of dark colored legs dirty uh, and, and his face is sort of very happy in a mad way and he's carrying in his hands a bunch of stuff I didn't see him initially what he had. And he was laughing and joking and running down the road. And people just, these things happen in India. <laughs> so no one was paying him any attention whatsoever. So he comes just where I was, but he didn't see me. He wasn't, he wasn't intending. And on the other side, there was an electrical shop in the same way, just a, a platform. But this company had made a counter <coughs> and a nice uh, seat, not like a, a, a desk office chair here, but something was there, and they had a television up over here. So this young man, he was better dressed, obviously, and he had his feet up on the desk, he was watching television. And this man, who's like really crazy, comes and he sits himself down right there in the front, on the edge of the front of the shop, directly opposite, about this far away from me, he's sitting. So that was interesting. So I'm drinking my milk, watching, and, and then he starts making a lot of noise, like a loud kind of uh, moving around. And the shopkeepers watching the television started to become annoyed. He didn't want him sitting there. It wasn't good for business, although there was no business. And so he, he shouted some words to him and tried to get him to move on. Just move on, move on. And he didn't. He just like, he was very happy and he was just sitting there and making a lot of noise. And so it was a young man. So he got up and he was really kind of half annoyed. Because in India you should only be half annoyed. If you get really annoyed, you're in trouble. So he was half annoyed and he, he came out from his seat and he started shouting at the man, like, you know, move on, move on. And the man, he's got all this stuff in his hands and he wasn't feeling like moving on. And so this young man, he took a fluorescent tube, right? uh, he got grabbed it, and he came around the front as if he was going to beat him, as if it was a stick. And he starts making growling noises, and he raises his fluorescent tube like this to the man, and the man sees him doing this, and with an equal amount of, of uh, non-caring, but, but also pretending, like reacting to him, this man takes all the stuff he has in his hands and he threw it up in the air. <laughs> now what he had in his hands was he had 
a couple of pieces of cardboard, like, I have this, right? It's made out of cardboard. So you've got a couple of pieces of cardboard, not neat and, and, and made properly like this, just something you found on the ground. And inside you had all these pieces of plastic, cellophane, papers, all the kind of things you'd pick out of the garbage. So he had this thing, he's holding it, it's full of all these pieces of, you could say, rubbish. And so when, when the man fake yells at him, he fake pretends that he's scared, and he throws the whole thing up in the air. And it goes flying everywhere, and a whole bunch of it lands in the milk. <laughs> and everywhere else as well. And then he gets up like as if he's really scared, and he's lost all his belongings, and now he's scared. And he starts running down the road laughing, just, and, and suddenly he was gone. And the milkman, because it's India, especially it's a, it's a spiritual place as well, he just very quietly took all the pieces out. <laughs> <laughs> out of the milk with his, you know, his stick or something, got everything out, and then he just sat there and kept stirring his milk. <laughs> It was astonishing. I, I saw this whole dramatic experience and, and how everybody reacted. And the young man just went behind the counter again, put his legs up and watched the television. So I thought to myself as I watched this, I thought that was a crazy man. But then I remembered that this is a holy place. This is the place of Lord Jagannath. This is a holy dham. And a dham means a, a, a transcendental place that radiates spiritual energy according to the personality who is predominating there. So this is Lord Jagannath's place. And this man is looking like he's just uh, wasting time, acting like a fool, or he's crazy. But I thought to myself, you just don't know. You don't know. Particularly here, in this place, you don't know if that's a crazy man, or if that's a deeply realized soul who is more or less ridiculing material life. He collects the garbage and throws it up in the air as if it has no value, and the young man is watching the television, he's absorbed in the movie, uh, and this interplay went on in such a profound way that I thought to myself, as I got up and walked home, I don't know who that man was. So I walked down this narrow road and I turned off to a side lane and there there was a hand pump, uh, a big hand pump that you see in Puri where the people who have no water in their houses, they come and they fill up their big pots and take them home. So there were some ladies and they were all filling up their pots and it was just, so it was a sunset, it was a beautiful time. And there he was, he was just sitting there peacefully <laughs> on the side where the hand pump was, where the ladies were, and nobody was disturbing him, he wasn't disturbing anyone, he was just sitting there. So when I went back and I started to think of what I had seen, it brought me to a point where I understood there was something very deep in the original culture of India, which we can call Vedic culture. Because now when you go to India, you will see that this culture has been watered down. Just like the milkman. Now that milkman, there weren't so many people living in Puri at that time. So he got a big container of milk and he poured it in and he boiled it up and he served it. But if there were twice as many people living there, how does he make twice as much milk? Does anyone know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps expanding it with water. And it looks the same, but it's adulterated by the amount of water. And if he has a lot of people coming, then you feel like you're drinking water, not milk. So India has become like that. You're not seeing Indian culture, you're seeing adulterated, watered-down Indian culture, and not even watered-down. You're seeing all kinds of uh, garbage 
practically speaking, has gone into that culture, like the walk with all the rubbish that went in. And so now, I don't know if you would want to drink that milk. So, in original Indian culture, we're not speaking here in an anthropology class, but in that ancient Indian culture, everyone was trained to be very careful when they dealt with anyone, to be very respectful of anyone, even somebody like this, because they had an awareness that you honestly do not know if that person is a deeply spiritual, realized person or they're crazy. So let's hear about some deeply spiritually realized people who behaved somewhat like this. So the first person that we meet in the Srimad Bhagavatam who is behaving in this way is Maharaj Yudhisthira, as we're hearing right now. So the Pandavas were the recipients of the kingdom of the Kuru dynasty. That means after the great battle we hear about yeah, from the Mahabharata, and we read about, after the great battle, they became, and they were already the rightful king, king, and the, the, the whole family was uh, the royalty of the time. But one time, because Krishna was there with them for the battle itself, and they were so dependent on Krishna out of love, one time Arjuna decided to go to Dwarka and see Krishna. So he went. But he was away longer than expected. And not only that, Maharaj Yudhisthira, who was a very super, super wonderful religious pious king, he was super sensitive to these different phenomena that he noticed in his kingdom. Now, I don't know what he would do if he came into the, the world today. I don't know what he would say. Because he was sensitive to things like the dogs were barking very loudly. And dogs are considered to be lower animals in the scale of intelligence and development of animals' uh, consciousness. And also not actually pious animals like the cow. So he saw the dogs were barking very loudly and the pious animals were becoming in, in, introverted. And that concerned him. To see the little tiny things that a king of that caliber was aware of. And he saw that there was a little bit of <clears throat> lying going on. A little bit of pride had come. The people were a little bit arrogant. Not much, but just a touch. And when he saw these mild characteristics that we see all around us, and we think that they're already full-blown, but they're not. There's a long way to go from here. And in one of Srila Prabhupada's he says, the Kali Yuga will increase to a point that we cannot even imagine. So he saw these few things and that made him worried. And then Arjuna returned and Arjuna looked so despondent. He's a royal, like a king, but now he's looking weak and unhappy and, uh, and very, 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 um, very despondent. So Eudestia starts asking him questions in a very cultured way. Has this happened? Why are you looking so unhappy? What's happened? Have you done this? Have you made a mistake? Have you... And he's asking him these ethical questions. Did you by chance offend somebody? Did you uh, not do your duty? This is the royal caliber. And he goes through all these different questions. And then at the end he says, or is it perhaps that uh, Sri Krishna has left this planet? His leader has been completed. And he's moved on. 
Now here's a very important point that Srila Prabhupada raises. He says that Krishna didn't go or disappear any more than the sun in the sky disappears at night time. If you go up and if you're very fortunate and you go up into the Apollo space station, way, way up high in the sky, you'll watch the earth go through day and night, day and night, day and night, day and night, uh, in less than perhaps an hour. So the sun didn't go anywhere, but the sun is not visible to our eyes <coughs> at the time of death, at the, ti at, 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 at the time of night. So similarly, it was time now for Yudhisthira Maharaj and the rest of the Pandavas to leave the stage. They weren't going to die uh, and be gone forever. You'd never find them anywhere. But they were, at Krishna's order, they were now to proceed to another destination where they would serve him in the same way. So Yudhisthira was the first one to accept this and so he just cut off from everything. He cut off from his wife. He cut off from his children. He cut off from his kingdom. He very quickly installed uh, Parikit Maharaj as the, the, the new king. A younger generation, Prabhupada said, the older generation must move on and give an opportunity to the younger generation to grow. So he very carefully, responsibly took care of those things. And then he cut off. And then, like this, he just wandered. He took off his royal crown, he took off his robes and the things that he would normally wear. He gave back all of his facilities for cooking royal food, for sleeping on a beautiful royal bed, and everything else that came along with his position. He renounced it all. And he walked out without even telling anyone. He didn't say to his brothers, you want to come with me? We can go to the Himalayas together. It would be so much fun. We could, you know, take a bath in the Ganga. We could have a really good time. No. He just walked out. So this, Prabhupada says, this is the stage of fearlessness. This is not irresponsibility. This is not a madman, although he looks like a madman. And it's not somebody who says, my family are giving me so many headaches and I can't get a good job. And I've met people like that in India and they say, I want to become a sadhu. <laughs> they don't look like a sadhu. And they say, why do you want to become a sadhu? You, know, you should be working. And they go, no, 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 my job failed. You know, my wife doesn't listen to me. My children have a headache. I want to become a sadhu. So that's not the stage of fearlessness. That's the stage of irresponsibility. But this was different than that. So that madman that I saw in Puri, he may have been a sadhu. And the second time we hear about somebody looking disheveled and disinterested in the world and how it runs, is when Sukadev, he leaves home and he goes through the forest naked, without anything. He's just not of this world. And he's so much not of this world that there are young girls and they're taking their bath and they see him walking by naked and they're not even shy. They don't even cover themselves up because they know he, he's not of this world. They don't have any kind of fear or surprise. He's just wandering like uh, something else. And when his father, who's a great Vyasadev, when he comes running behind calling his son to come home, come home, come home, you know, we'll take care of you, come home, the girls all cover themselves up immediately. Because they know that he, the father, he discriminates between men and women. He sees this is a girl and this is a boy. And so the girls know the proper behavior, and so they cover themselves up. And this is noted that he's so great, he's so saintly, he's not a bad man. Why did you not cover yourselves up with him when he ran by? And they said, oh, he doesn't see anything like that. He doesn't know we're girls and he's a boy. He doesn't know anything. He's not in this world. So here's another person who's like a man-to-man. 
but his features were extraordinarily beautiful. Yet, as he came into the towns and wandered around, uh, little girls and little boys would run behind and tease him and play with him because he was like, he was just like a, 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 a like them. He didn't have any purpose, he was just walking around, just they were playful with him. Until he arrived at the assembly, who had come together to uh, advise Maharaj, the king, the grandson of Yudhisthira, who he had placed on the throne. So this is some time later, when it was his time to go. This young boy wearing nothing, just hair everywhere and so on. When he came to that assembly of all these sages and people who come to advise the king, everyone there stood up and honored him. And when these little children who were playing with him saw the honor that he was getting, he was receiving, they backed off and they went away to play somewhere else. And he started speaking, articulating the very knowledge that we hear now before us. So here's another, possibly not crazy, uh, appearing to be crazy person. And we read halfway through the Srimad Bhagavatam in the fifth volume about two other kings who did likewise. And each one of them had a different reason. Yudhisthira Maharaj and his brothers, in their minds, what was their reason? Because they valued the association of Krishna over everything else. When Krishna left, they were going immediately to where he was. That was their determination. Sukadeva Goswami, he had nothing to do with the world. He was already beyond this world. It, it didn't, he didn't relate to anything here. Then we have a great king called Rishabdev, who ruled in a very ancient time, and he had a hundred sons, and he taught them all the rules and obligations and duties of being a king and responsible for the society. He gave them all his instructions, which are written here, and then he also retired, and he just behaved like a crazy person also. He wandered here and there. And if you read about him, you find out why did he do that. And he, it describes that he did this to teach the yogis how to die. That at the end of your life as a yogi, you leave everything behind. You have nothing to do with this world. You fix your mind on the inside, you disregard the opinion of others and you focus deeply on your spirituality. So he gave all his teachings, he gave all his learnings, he gave his experience, he enthroned his son and then he went out of society entirely. Now the one that we know the most about, I think, the most poignant one, the one that uh, I remember even making a puppet show of his life is this oldest son of Maharaj Vishantev, whose name was, who knows, Bharat Maharaj. And it said that the whole of India and the subcontinent and all around was also India at that time, um, was renamed after Bharat Maharaj. And you must have heard Bharat Varshan in India today. Bharat, ah, they're very uh, patriotic. That was named long, long ago over this king. And he was a very pious king. And he ruled according to all the instructions of his father. He was very careful. He took care of the citizens like they were his children. Contrast that with what we see today and you'll understand a little bit of what Kali Yuga is like. So at a fairly young age, he decided that he wanted to give the rest of his life and his attention to his spiritual journey. And so he retired from the kingdom, and he went to live in somewhere near the Himalayas at a place called Pulasta Ashram, 
And there he was practicing all his sadhana. He was doing worship, meditation, so many things. He had a, a lifestyle based only exclusively on his spiritual practices. And he was ascending in his qualifications. And there he was. It was a very peaceful, powerful place. And one day he heard, because in that part of the country it was not uncommon, he heard the sound of a lion's roar. Now, if you've ever heard the sound of a lion's roar, particularly if the lion was not in a cage, <laughs> then it does something to the heart. It's actually quite terrifying. Because the lion is a representation also of Krishna, and it helps us to understand how uh, Lord Nishrimadev appeared as a lion, half lion. And this roaring sound, it's like, it's like thunder. It starts like... <laughs> and they feel like, oh no. And then it starts to really blast. So he heard this lion's roar, and he particularly wasn't afraid, because he was in his meditation. But he saw there was a, a very small black deer nearby who was pregnant. And the black deer became terrified and wanted to jump across a nearby river to escape from the lion. But as the deer jumped across the river, the embryo from her womb dropped into the water that was fast flowing. And he saw this little just-born deer floating down the river to inevitable death. Now, his past karma was he was a king. He took care of the citizens impeccably. So even when he saw this small deer was about to die, he picked the deer up out of the water and brought it home. <clears throat> so far, so good. <laughs> but then he started to pet the deer and play with the deer. And he thought the deer was like, uh, like a, a child, or like his, his uh, responsibility. And he started to uh, develop, you could say, a relationship with the baby deer. And as he did that, and this is for our learning and understanding, as he developed his affection for the deer, he simultaneously reduced his affection for his sadhana. It was, in his case, that went down and this went up. And he was always looking after the deer because of the lions. So he never wanted the deer to go far away. And if the deer did go far away, he'd be very anxious. And all his attention suddenly went towards the deer. And one time, the deer just didn't come back. It went off somewhere and it didn't come back. And he went almost crazy thinking, what's happened to the deer? And he was so concerned for the deer, he started almost making poetry about the deer, thinking that the, the whole earth is so blessed because of the footsteps of this little deer. And now the deer has gone. Now the interesting thing is that usually we hear people do that, men and women do that, right? in the movies, like, oh, she was like this, this and this, she meant everything to me, without her I can't live, and, or, you know, all these uh, love stories, we hear this kind of uh, talk, exaggerated talk of appreciation coming from a type of affection that is fairly illusory, usually, and doesn't last. So he was thinking and worrying about this dear, and Unfortunately, his time to die came. And at the point of his death, can you imagine what he was thinking? I'm going. Who's going to take care of the deer now? The tiger will come. The lion will come. I've got this deer to take care of. I'm dying. He thought of the deer. And his next birth was in the womb of a deer. He became, in his next life, in the form of a deer. Now, we have arms and legs, and we walk, and we pick things up, and so on, but a deer has four little paws, 
and has to walk around and, and can't just get something out of the fridge and eat it. They have to eat leaves and they can't pick anything up, they just keep walking around. So he, is, he was given as a gift that we may or may not think was very nice. <laughs> he was given the remembrance of what happened. What happened? Why am I here now? I was elevating my consciousness spiritually and now I've got four little legs and I'm living in another place and what am I going to do? He could remember everything. This was a gift. And so he went back to the place where everything had happened, where the whole thing had taken place. He made his way back to that place and he lived outside that ashram. And, and Srila Prabhupada speaks about this uh, at different times. When you see an animal living near a temple or attached to the temple, you should know that's a previous inmate of that temple who didn't pass all the tests and maybe he had a pet deer <laughs> and so now he's come in the form of a cat or a dog or a mouse to live in the same place but with some disqualification because his, his mind went in a different way. So he lived there, he went through the whole process of his life, he didn't eat anything but the grass there, and he focused his mind on what he had done that had got him into this situation. He wasn't neurotic, didn't need a psychiatrist, because he was having low self-esteem. He was just fixed on, what did I do? Why did I do that? I don't want to do that ever again. And then when he gave up that body in his next life, he decided that I don't want anything to do with modern society. I don't want anything to do with it. Nothing. He was born into a very religious family with a very hard-working, serious father who wanted to teach him all the mantras, all the sattvic qualities, all the things that would make him into a brahmana. He wanted to look towards, you know, in the future he'll have to get married, he'll have to know things that he can take care of his family. His father was very concerned about his well-being. But his son, he is called now, he was still Bharat, but he's called Jara Bharat because he acted as if he was made out of stone. Like he was mute, stupid, couldn't understand anything. Uh, did everything wrong and was compliant to anything that was happening. Totally compliant on the outside. Like when his brothers would give him rubbish to eat, he would eat it. He didn't care. On the outside he was like, I don't care about the outside. I am fixed on the inside and I'm not going to make the same mistake again. And his father, like he tried to teach him how to wash his hands after he was in the, in, in, in the bathroom and he would wash his hands before and he wouldn't wash them after and he tried to teach him mantras and he never learned them he said he set them back the front and upside down when his father died his brothers thought he was stupid and they stuck him into different kinds of jobs just to get rid of him and eventually he was somewhere wandering around, mute, dumb, dirty, uh, stupid looking. And the king was passing by in a palanquin, and one of the palanquin uh, carriers was unfit. And so they saw him. He's just this stupid idiot with no brain but a big strong body. Let's get him to, cook, to pull the, to carry the king. And he agreed, because he agreed with everything on the outside and nothing from the inside. And he carried the king's palanquin, but he was all the time not wanting to step on any ants. And he was firm. So he was just going at a different pace than the others. And the king was going bumpity, bumpity, bumpity. <laughs> and he was like, mm -hmm. he didn't care about the king. He was, didn't want to hurt the ants. And so finally the king 
stopped and he said, what's going on? And they said, the other men didn't want to, they were into it. It was their sutra work. And they said, this one, he's not doing it right. He's, he's making, he's going slow. And so the king said, well, you know, teach him, tell him what to do and let's keep going. So they started again, going forward, and he's still doing the same thing. And then the king got angry and he turned to him and he said, oh, very powerful man, I see you're very weak. You look alive, but I think you're dead. And he started saying nasty things to that part. And this was the only time he decided to speak. And his speaking was so powerful. He told the king that you think that uh, I'm this body and all the things you criticize for, they're all true. But you're foolish because you think you're a king and I'm a palanquin carrier. Perhaps in a future life I will be a king and you will be a palanquin carrier. And these things are very uh, superficial. So he spoke to the king in such a profound way that the king became terrified. The king had overstepped this rule that we saw in Puri of if someone's crazy, still don't become angry with them because they might be a sage. So the king had become angry and rude to him. And when he spoke such lucid spiritual truth, the king got down from his chariot in a flash and he said, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of fire. I'm not afraid of any enemy. I'm not afraid of anything in this world but one thing. I am terrified of committing an offense towards a sadhu. And you're a sadhu. And he bowed flat on the ground and he said, please forgive me. I'm so sorry if I didn't recognize you. And then Jad Bharat spoke, and then the king said to him, you know, I don't see things quite the way you do. I think like this. And he started to explain his view of reality. And then Jad Bharat said, uh, that's very ignorant. You're very ignorant, actually. And the king now was ready to listen. And so then he gave all of his teachings, which are here implanted in the Bhagavatam, from the mouth of a crazy man. And the king was totally transformed. He didn't go on being a king. He too became uh, spiritually awakened. And then Jan Bharat just wandered on. He didn't speak again. When he finished what he wanted to say, he just wandered on in the same crazy way, waiting for the time when he could actually be released from this world. Because his attention was fully on who he was spiritually and what he wanted to achieve. So our beggar in Puri, he showed me something. But when I was preparing this class, I thought to myself, okay, but what if he really was a madman? <laughs> what if he wasn't a sadhu? There's no guarantee that he was a sadhu. What if he was a madman? So then I found a, a verse from Srila Prabhupada, a, a section from Srila Prabhupada. He said, the whole subject matter is wonderful because it is just like a madman is trying to know himself. He's talking about Bhagavad Gita to a group of people. So he's saying the subject is wonderful. It's like a madman. So he's hinting, just politely hinting that we're a little mad. He says, a madman has everything by his side, but he sees and accepts everything in a different way. A madman cannot realize himself in relationship to his home, his relatives, his status, his occupation, his aim of life, and all other things, because the man himself is in a diseased condition. In a deranged condition the brain, of the brain, one cannot know what he is and where he is. 
The human being at present is talking about us, not the crazy man. He says, the human being at present is practically speaking in a deranged condition of the brain. And he must therefore put himself under the treatment of a psychiatrist for treatment. Now, anyone who has put themselves under the care of a psychiatrist, that means that he's going to help you sort out your mental faculties. And Prabhupada is not referring to that kind of psychiatrist, but he's using the word which is very helpful for us because we can relate to it because we know what a psychiatrist is and how they try to help somebody who's functioning improperly. Prabhupada says, he must undergo the process of treatment and then only he can understand what he is. Lord Sri Krishna played the part of a great psychiatrist in treating Arjuna for curing him from his temporary stroke of madness by acceptance of the material body as identical with the human spirit. Arjuna identified his material body identical as his human spirit and he needed a psychiatrist and Krishna was there. So he acted as Arjuna's psychiatrist, if you need a psychiatrist, Krishna is the supreme psychiatrist and he's always willing to help. So Prabhupada said, the Lord at once differentiated. What does differentiated mean? Does anyone can explain the word differentiated? Differentiated means where you can uh, <coughs> differentiate one thing from another so that you can like do uh, a pencil from an eraser. Ah, very well said, thank you. Uh, differentiated means I can tell that these are paper and this is a book. I can separate, I can understand them properly. So Prabhupada says, the Lord at once differentiated the human spirit. This is his term for the soul. He differentiated between the human spirit from the material elements, the inert material elements, and called the spirit as Dehi, the owner of the body, and the body as Deha, or the owned body. He differentiated between we ourselves as the human spirit and all the things around us which are made of matter. He enabled Arjuna to see two things, not one thing. And when you talk to anybody that you meet anywhere in the world, they will have not made that differentiation unless they have been to this supreme psychiatrist who will help them to say, no, this is not one thing, this is two things. Do you see? It's two things. It's spirit and matter. The world is made of spirit and matter. And this and this and this are matter, and this and this is spirit. And spirit is like this, and matter is like that, so don't confuse them. And when you can differentiate between the two, you can be called not a madman. Otherwise, you might have to be also considered to be crazy. So there was our Puri madman uh, throwing his garbage into the milk. There was our milk waller who was taking it out <laughs> without any complaint because he knew he was a crazy man. And there was our very more successful shopkeeper on the other side who's lounging back in his chair watching some movie on television and, uh, and feeling quite good about himself and probably quite relieved that he moved this crazy fellow on. Now, who was the man-man there? Perhaps they were all a little crazy. <laughs> and perhaps that, that category is expanded to include us at certain times when we think of ourselves as made of matter. This body is made of matter. Made of matter. You should have a little stamp when you put it on your hand. I'm made of matter. But I'm not made of matter. I'm living inside this 
made of matter, body. If we can make that differentiation between pencil and the book, between paper and the book, if we can make that, then we're on the road to recovery. So I will stop here. I hope you have gained something from the madman in Puri. <laughs> and if anyone has any questions, please ask. Yes, Paul. You mentioned about Sophia, this Yudhishthir Maharaj, and last night when you mentioned about Jayabharat and even Sukhya Goswami, they chose to act as transcendental madmen um, because of their transcendental consciousness. Um, but then you also see example of Prabhupada and many of his followers were also very transcendental, but they don't yes. act in, 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 in such way. Um, so could you please have a conversation by this word exactly? Well, you, you see in the Bible there are many stories um, of different personalities, and there's only three or four of people who acted in this way. So it's not meant to be that we should act in this way, that's not the point. And if you read carefully, you see there's a reason why they did it. Uh, so if if this is required at a certain time for a certain type of yoga practice, then you can understand why that personality displayed this type of uh, uh, act, act, because it's ultimately an act in the sense that they're not mad. Uh, if you think that that would work in today's day and age, <laughs> I think people are already mad. <laughs> It would be better than mushrooms seeing you act like a crazy person. They would probably put you in a mental institute and you wouldn't get very far with that process. Um, so these were also, each one of these uh, leaders enactments were in different time frames long ago. And in this particular time that we're living, people are already so downtrodden by by materialistic, by materialism, essentially. If you go to the DFO, is that what it's called? To buy things. Wander <laughs> around that place, it's kind of weird, you know, it, it, and you're trapped. There's only them, and they're all buying things and selling things, and, and it's all glamorous and it's all going on. And, you know, if you haven't been in a place like that for a long time, it's quite startling. But not for the people who come there all the time. That's the norm. That's how we do things now. So the contrast, if you took Shiva Prabhupada to a place like that, you wouldn't. But he would be uh, uh, very uh, disgusted and probably feel very compassionate to the people who are leading this kind of materialistic lifestyle. How are you going to ask those people to become... Uh, spiritual even. They're all materialists, materialists. So if you were going to ask them to become more spiritualized, clearly you'd have to give them something relatively simple to do. It would still be hard because they're going a hundred zillion miles an hour in a different direction. But it would have to be super simple. If you tell them that, you know, all those people who just sort of let your hair grow when they were doing that, you know, and do this and do that and, and forget about money, they won't be able to do that, you know, and, and just become crazy and don't think about eating or anything, just wander in down Swanston Street and let people beat you if they choose to and you know, sleep anywhere on the pavement and if the police come and drag you away, let them. <laughs> you know. And internally all that time, while all that's going on, meditate. I don't think they could do it. So, Lord Chaitanya's mercy comes in a very, a very, very potent, simple tablet. You just try to chant Hare Krishna as much as you can, whenever you can, wherever you can, in any uncomfortable position, or when you're sleeping even, or when you're uh, in an unclean state. You tell there's no rules. Just try and absorb this Hare Krishna chanting as much as you can and sanctify your food. If you sanctify your food by making a gesture of offering it back 
to the source, the personality who has given it, you'll begin to see quite clearly that there's a Supreme Personality behind everything. You might not see him with your eyes, except of course when you come into the temple. You might not be able to interact with him in the same way you can with a human being, who you can see and laugh and push and joke. But you'll begin to see that he's clearly there. He's clearly there. And you'll wonder why it is that other people don't see it. Why are they wasting their lives doing all of these different materialistic activities? And then also when you do those activities, because you might have to earn a living at the DFO, then you'll do them in a different way. You'll reserve your inner consciousness. You won't want to get into their headspace, even if you have to work with them. So then you are doing what Jad Bharat is doing, in your own way, without having to appear crazy. And anyway, they'll think you're crazy. That's <laughs> like, look at you, why don't you get a job? <laughs> look at you, you know, Indian, why are you doing this? You know, Indian people are weird anyway. They do funny things, they worship all these statues and things like that. But you don't have to do that, you know, you've got a better culture. Uh, they'll think you're crazy. You look crazy to them just wearing a dhoti. So there you have it. <laughs> yeah. So we saw that there are three madmen, and the first madman is Yudhishthir Maharaj. Yes. And he left the palace yes. after achieving everything. Yes. So how do we know in our life when do we have to leave everything and move towards the next phase of life? He left when he heard that Krishna had gone. So he, he's, um, his, 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 his intention and his practice is, is, a, is superior to what we have available. We can't uh, <laughs> go and be where Krishna is. But how do we know when we have to leave everything? I think you would, this is a, sounds like a silly answer, but don't leave until you know you have to leave everything. The answer is how would you know that you have to leave everything? You'd have to know. You, you'd have to know already, and then you know have to leave everything. You wouldn't, it wouldn't be an analytical thing. I think I should leave everything. No, maybe not. You know, maybe I should do this instead of that. That's not a good time to leave everything. But when something starts to grow inside of you very strong, you can ask these young three, we have three young men here, you can ask them, how did you come here? You're not born in this culture. This is not your, your we didn't polish you up a little bit and there underneath you were a Hare Krishna. You actually had to leave everything on some level, the values. Why did you do it? How did you know? Okay, I'm asking you. <laughs> they're our, our, they're wonderful. They left everything. They left, the, they left the value system. They didn't leave necessarily the whole world. But they had to step beyond a certain degree of value system. Whereas for yourself, you're fortunate, you're born in India, you have these values also, but they're just underdeveloped. So they can rise up with good association. But their example is outstanding. So, are you ready to answer? So that's Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita, okay. There you go, first step. And you? I'm at Vijayapur. <laughs> They all met Dujan Prabhu. And they all, I think they all must have been uh, uh, activated by reading Bhagavad Gita. Because all of a sudden you get a higher truth coming to your, you're accessing higher truth, and then you start looking at things differently. So you have to be accessing higher truth now in this ashram in this stage of your life, and then as you go on with those truths, you may find that the circumstances are changing in different ways, and those truths become more prominent, and you check with your situation that nobody's going to be um, abandoned, and you're ready. Usually that's later in life. Generally that's later in life. But those are some symptoms and characteristics of how you can know that a transition is required. Without those things, I think, we 
we're, we're trying to advance and perfect what we have at the current time is the best advice for us. Lord Chaitanya even told the uh, Kuma Brahmana to stay home. He told them, you and I forgot what it was, maybe tolerance and humility by living at home with your wife. <laughs> so he needed those qualities that you get them from family life because no one will listen to you in the same way. And you go somewhere and preach and everyone goes, oh, Prabhu. <laughs> You go home and your family says, can you make something? I'm hungry and fix this and do that. So that's just an advantage in that, to mature us. But are we being told to leave the house and move towards... No. So oh, you know something that's interesting there, just to answer you. Prabhupada answers, what was Jack Barrett's mistake? Because if you study the story, you're like, how could he have let that dear died. And the problem was, he didn't have any guidance. If he had asked that question to a guru and said, there's this deer here, what should I do with the deer? And the, and the person said, you should take care of that deer with your heart and soul. Then what he was doing would be an order. So similarly, when you ask, should I leave? Should I do this? Should I do that? You have to have higher guide, guidance. In making, in, in making changes that are going to uh, affect you in that way. I'll go to Guja Prabhu Mahadev. Okay. Guja Prabhu has got it. So don't you let your hair grow. <laughs> you got a lot on your shoulders. <laughs> thank you. I think we're very much late. Um, my apologies. And thank you. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Thank you.